you'll grab your Bibles. We're in Philippians. Uh, we began our Philippians a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Philippi was a great place for Paul, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks. He, um, he's, he writes things like, I thank my God every time I think of you. That's a big statement. It really wasn't a very stressful place for Paul, even though uh, you know, a lot of things were happening. I don't know if you've ever been there in a stressful situation where life is just terrible, one thing after another just kind of hits you upside the head and you don't know which way you're spinning. Yet at the same time, as it's being really stressful, Paul is relaxed. Paul is okay because he knows the Lord is there. That's the situation that Paul finds himself in. That people were there and they were hungry for the truth. And they wanted to, to know from Paul, hey, tell us the truth. You, you know about the truth, tell us that. And they wanted to learn from Paul. And he wanted to teach them. And this is such a great place for Paul that he wrote to them 11 years later. I mean, this church has grown from this point. It's huge now. And this church was the only church that supported Paul. Uh, you know, Paul was a, a willing tent maker. He was willing to go out there and travel and work to, to earn extra money and at times that he needed the, the money. But this church was the only church that never forgot about him, that never, uh, that always remembered him. And he, they supported him and he had great memories. Paul's first time in Europe, he fell in love with, with the place. I don't know if you've ever done this. You go somewhere and you just fall in love with it, right? You guys know where I love. Where's that? I've trained them well. I've trained you guys well. You go someplace and you just fall in love with it. Great memories. It's the closest thing I could, could imagine it would be like for Paul. And, and the reason why it was so special was those memories. It's also special because Philippi was born after doors were shut for Paul, and we talked about this last week. He tried to go to a certain place, and God put up a, a roadblock and said, no, you're not going there. He tried to go up north, and it just wasn't going to happen. Paul did not understand what was going on. He was kind of, you know, everything just fell apart. Everyone's standing around looking at Paul because he's the leader. You're supposed to decide. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where everyone's looking at you, and you have no clue. This is Paul. One thing I do know is when things aren't working out, it's usually when our prayer lives start to improve, right? Things become stressful. Our prayer life, for some reason, starts up. Everything's great. Not so much praying. Everything bad, we start praying. Paul's sitting there going, I really don't have a clue what's going on. Let me go to the Lord. And maybe he can tell me what's going on. Maybe he can lead me on this. Maybe he can talk me through this and so forth. And, you know, this is interesting. I imagine the, the angel sitting up there and going, yeah, Paul, hello. We've been trying to tell you for the last 80 miles. And you're just now catching up. You're finally going to the Lord. I mean, it only took you 30 days this time, Paul. Another point is that if you're a mature Christian, if you've been around the Lord enough you know that when one door closes, another door is going to open up. And you have things to look forward to. Because if, you know, if automatically all we do is turn around and look at the doors that are still closing, I'd get depressed a little bit, wouldn't you? If you always concentrate on what is, what is happening that, that, that is a negative, 
and never think about where is God trying to lead you, you don't move forward. Every day you would just sit there. We must look forward to those open doors. You know, sometimes those doors close. I don't know, anybody date somebody else before they married their husband or wife? You know, those doors close and another door opens and now you're with a great spouse, right? Now, hopefully I hear a couple of amens there. You're with a great spouse, right? <laughs> Especially from the guys, come on now. I mean, a door closes, you think you have the job, and it shuts down. But then another job opens up because the Lord leading you a certain direction. You're going one direction, and then you call, you know, we start to call Jesus Lord, and, and when you call him Lord, he took it seriously. It's like you're saying the jo- uh, to, to Jesus, you're my boss now. And he's like, okay, I'm, I'm the boss. And then all of a sudden he shuts the door, and we're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Maybe you're not my boss. And he goes, no, 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 no. You said it. You've already said it. And I'm taking you serious on that. If you were in a situation where the doors are closing, you have to pay attention. We must sit a little while with the Lord to find out why those doors may be closing. The scriptures say, be still and know God. We must sit still. And then everybody, you know, and, and eventually we start hearing the little creaking noise in the house. Little creaking noise, in the, you know, by the Holy Spirit. And another door starts to open up. And we're like, well, that wasn't even a door. That was a wall. And the Lord's going, yeah, I can make doors wherever I want to make doors. I see things completely different than how you do. And this is how it is to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He loves us. He's a good boss. He's a good Lord. He's a good friend. But when we call him Lord, he will close certain doors and open other doors. Paul also says, but, but we are confident of one thing, that he who began a good work will do what? Carry it on to completion. That's a great thing. He will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. These are the things that Paul is writing. He's writing to them. One thing we didn't get to last time as we were talking about, call Paul, uh, Paul calls the people of Philippi the saints. And I don't know if you've noticed this. Every, you know, every book that Paul writes... He says, to the saints of, and he goes on and on and on, okay? I don't know what your picture of saints is. When you hear the word saint, I'm sure you automatically think of the Catholic Church, right? Paul even calls the people of Corinth saints. And I don't know, how do I put this? There was a lot of hanky-panky going on in Corinth, to put it kind of in a weird way. A lot of stuff that was not a reflection of who Jesus Christ was, and yet he calls them saints. See, our word saints comes from a cultural view, whether you hear the word saint, you know, it's the Catholic Church, I mean, that's reality, but uh, because they call people saints, they've elected people, they put them up on pedestal, but Paul says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a saint, if you're a follower of God. So from now on, starting today, you can call me St. Alan of Tulare. 
It'll take several weeks, I know. We can put it in the bulletin. You can start working on my statue to put out. Okay, maybe not. That is what we are. We're saints. If you follow Christ, you are a saint. We can do a fundraiser, right? Little plastic Allen, start selling them for the Philippines, you know. I mean, what does it mean to be a saint? To be serious and holy and not interact with sinners? You go up on the mountaintop and you stay up on the mountaintop to get away? No, 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 no. We can't, you know, we're like, no, we can't interact with sinners. But that's not it. That's not it at all. That would not be a life for us, right? It just means that we're different, that we're supposed to become like Christ. Our responses, our reactions after things happen, how should I respond to this? How should I act in this situation? Am I acting more like Christ or am I acting more like the old Alan? That's the question we have to ask. We're set apart, and Jesus is the one that starts to change us, and we become saints. Now, not when we get to heaven. Not when we get to heaven and start acting better. If you are, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. If you're not in Christ Jesus, then you are not a saint. Plain and simple. I mean, think about that. You're a saint. I don't know if my mom would agree with that, but I'm a saint. Now, the amazing thing is that Daniel figured this out in Old Testament times. He wrote about sainthood. He wrote about what it meant to be a saint. John wrote about it in the book of Revelations. We're living in the end times, I believe. Now, whether that happens in three years, 30 years, 300 years, I don't know, and I don't care to find out. I just want to do what Jesus calls me to do, and I'm going to keep walking until he comes, or I go to be with him, right? But I believe we're in somewhat of the end times. The interesting thing about the word is it's never used in a singular fashion. It's always plural. It's always to the saints of. It's always about a fellowship thing. It's always about koinonia. You've always heard that term. That term has been bounced around for ages. It was big back in the 80s, you know. We're going we're gonna to even name the building the Koinonia building, you know. But what it really meant was fellowship. It meant coming together. It's really one thing to, to you know, the, the only thing that we have in common is that we're saints. You see, everybody was called saints back then. They didn't even call everybody Christians. Christians was actually a derogatory term at this point, and it was, you know, it's, well, I mean, it's almost a derogatory term nowadays again. It's been kind of turned on its head, but the term was from the Romans who used to really kind of put you down, so they started calling each other saints, and I tell you, it's amazing. I've seen people from different walks of life that have nothing in common you know, I always say, uh, you know, I go every year fishing up to Canada, and, and you guys get to see the, the fish pictures when we get back. And I have to take pictures to prove what I say is true, you know, on how many fish we catch and how big they are and all that kind of stuff. But I always said about the trip, we have CEOs to janitors on the trip, and we all get along because we fish together, and we don't talk about politics or religion. But when you're a Christian... You can be a CEO or a janitor, and you have nothing in common, yet you get along. Why? 
because you're of Christ Jesus, because you are a saint. We had some friends in the Bay Area. I've told this story probably before. Some of you guys have heard it, but um, I call them my hillbilly friends, okay? They literally had a pig, and I'm not talking about a potbelly pig. I'm talking about a pig living in their house at one point. And they thought they would never become friends with Alan and Lisa because Alan and Lisa were too prim and proper. As you can tell as I'm wearing my flip-flops on stage here. You know, we're too prim and proper, so that kind of gives you a perspective, okay? At one point, there was a fire that happened uh, at their place, and literally the fire department guy, one of the guys that was a retired fire department, he was driving by outside of Livermore and saw the smoke and called it in, and they were dropping water, because it was one of those days, it was 110, dropping water on their land before the fire department actually got out there from the helicopter. The firemen were like, you guys, Vicky, you guys, you guys got to get out of the house. And eventually they built a pig pen for their pig, and the pig's name was Porkalese, okay? And uh, I better hurry up because I'm going to run out of time here. So Porkalese is in the pen. The fire's coming up the hill. Vicky's in there holding on to the pig, and they're like, you got to leave. And she's like, I'm not leaving Porkalese. Well, eventually they got the fire out, and it was all okay, and they got a picture. All the firemen got into the pig pen with the pig and took a picture, and I'm sure it's on the firehouse wall in Livermore. Um, you know, ironic, their daughter married one of the firemen um, eventually. So, uh, you know, but th- that, nothing in common with them except what, what Jesus Christ. And I ended up doing their, their kid's wedding. That's what it means to be in Christ, to build relationships Now, the second thing is I start learning to love those that are around me because I start assuming that they're a saint also. We need to learn to love each other, especially in this political world. That's why we talked about who cares about the shots. Either you got the shot or you didn't get the shot, but we're not going to let that divide our church in the middle of all that mess. We start plugging into what Jesus expects of us. I don't know what's harder, to assume that I'm a saint or to assume that you're a saint. You know what I'm saying? Because we look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, I'm not, I'm not a saint, you know. When it comes to the world's view of what we expect out of sainthood versus what, we ex- you know, versus what we personally expect, both are difficult because of our image of what sainthood is. Because it's defined by the world when it needs to be defined by Jesus. What does it mean to be a saint? What does Jesus think of us? It is so different than what we think of ourselves. Think about yourself for a moment. Now, how many of us went to the negative? You know what I'm saying? We like to go to the negative. Oh, my hair's messed. Why do you think I keep my hair short? I can throw a hat on all the time. I can take the hat off. It looks the same. I don't have to worry about it being messed up, right? I'm too big. I ate too much. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not pretty enough. Now think of the way that Jesus thinks of you. It's a lot more affirming, right? He sees us as saints. 
It makes us get to the point where we can, you know, where, where if we continue to think along the directions of what our mind thinks, we start to become depressed about ourselves. And we expect God to become hard on us. But often God is so gentle. He says, you know, he takes us and we're like, what do you mean you're not mad at me? Come on. I mean, you need to be mad at me. This week I, I picked up my son from school and he goes, I got in trouble from school today. I asked him what he did, and he told me. I go, okay, well, that's no big deal. And he goes, you're not mad at me? I'm like, no. His expectation was that we were going to be upset. When we really mess up, that's what we expect. I mean, come on, you're not mad? And like the verse we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new is here. How do you change to be like Jesus? You allow the Holy Spirit to enter in and start changing you. One thing at a time. Because if you try to look at everything, forget that. Forget it. It's too much. You sit down and you wallow. You just need to get out there and you need to start doing. And that's what the Christian walk is all about. Because if you start thinking about sainthood, you have this picture of sainthood, and you're never going to reach it. But if you start living in the way that Christ wants you to live, then you start acting like a saint. And eventually you get down the road and you go, wow, how did I get here? And you'll surprise yourself. Well, let's jump into <laughs> I'm way out of time. Okay, Philippians 1. We're going to skip around a little bit here, but it says... Uh, I thank God, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is so awesome when somebody else praises you. It's really cool. You just sit there going, wow. When you, when, you, when you get a note or you get a, a text and somebody goes, you know what, I thought about you today, and it wasn't a negative. You know, you're even surprised. It says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. That's a good question. Who is in your heart? Whoever you thought of, that's who's in your heart. This is how Paul feels about the Philippians. This is how, how uh, Jesus feels about Paul. Jesus says to Paul, I have you in my heart. And Paul's sitting there going, oh, that is so good. Hey, hey, Timothy, Silas, write this down. I have you in my heart. That's how these letters got written. You know, Paul just sitting there thinking about God and God going, write this down. I have you in my heart. Paul's just giving his experience out to them and how Jesus is loving him and he's loving them in the same way saying, I follow Christ, therefore follow me. He's not saying, well, I'm such a great guy, follow me. He's going, no, I'm running up toward Christ and this is the direction that Christ is going, so I'm going, so you guys follow me. Come on, let's go. That's how it happens. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. God has been trying to get the leaders of his people for eons 
all the way back to Moses to have his people on their heart. Do you have God's people on your heart? Since the children were in the desert, do you know what they did for the high priest during Old Testament times? God commanded them to do this breastplate thing. And think of, uh, you know, armor, chest plates. You know, we think of medieval, uh, medieval armor or whatever. But it was a cloth thing. And this cloth was sewn in 12 precious stones that stayed right on their hearts. And you know what those 12 stones represented? The 12 tribes of Israel. They represented the people. And God's saying, I have you on my heart. And then priests, I want you to have them on your heart. I want the leaders to have the people on their heart. What a great representation of how God feels about us. He goes on and says, whether I am in chains, in verse 7, or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify, uh, testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is, I mean, for Paul, this is getting mushy here. But there's more than that. They've experienced miracles together. These people came together and they experienced amazing things. Have you ever been around when something really cool has happened within a group? Where stuff just kind of came together and people just shared a bond and, and, and it just, it's just such, every time you think of it, it's such a great memory. That's what Paul's doing. You shared in all of this with me. Now, you got to remember, if it was up to Paul, he would have never been in Philippi. He wouldn't have gone there. He had all these different plans, and God messed them up. And God goes, no, I don't want you to go there. But even more than that, we share in God's grace every day. God isn't judging me more than he's giving us grace. What I mean is this. He's not sitting there going, ah, bring Alan's measuring cup over here. Here's a little bit of grace. Oh, bring the judgment cup over. Here's a little bit of judgment. No. In fact, he brings truckloads of grace, especially for, for people like me and people like you, right? He's like, okay, bring in the semi, you know, the one that lifts up, you know. Beep, 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 you know. Okay, next one, bring in the second one. Bring in the third one. He brings these truckloads of grace and just dumps it on the ground in front of us. And Paul uses his up by the end of the day. And he goes, God, I need a little bit more grace. And God doesn't go, no, I'm sorry, Paul. Your grace has been used up for the day. No, he gives us more. He gives us a steadfast love. It's new every morning. How much grace do you need on a daily basis? I mean, who required more grace in the New Testament than Paul? Anyone? I mean, maybe Peter, you know? You know, get thee behind me, Satan, Peter. He needed truckloads full of grace. And God was there to give it to him every day. Jesus looks us in the eye and tells the truth about himself to us. God wants us to represent him. And that in itself is a miracle. It's a miracle that God took five of us from here 
to go to the Philippines to represent him because of the things that have happened in the past of those five lives. Okay, maybe not so much Brandon. I mean, he's only 12. But the rest of us, we're sitting there going, I shouldn't be here. But God's grace says, I want you to go and share God's, uh, my grace because I've given it to you. My grace overwhelms anything that you could ever do. You see, it's about mercy and grace. What is mercy and grace? Kind of played around with this in my head all week. Mercy is not getting what I deserve, but Jesus goes beyond that, the not giving of what we deserve, and he goes on to the grace. See, if I went to Gary's house and I stole his, his uh, nice uh, car, and I wrecked the car, the grace would be that he wouldn't prosecute me. Or the, the mercy, I mean, would be him not prosecuting me. The grace would be, well, Alan, I know your car's messed up, and you messed up my car. I'm going to go out and buy two of them, and I'm going to give you one of them. That's the grace part of it. You see what I'm saying? Now, Gary's not going to do that, and I'm not going to steal his car. He's becoming more like Christ. He's not Christ yet. You know what I'm saying? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Mercy is not going to hell when I die. Merciful, merciful God. Praise the Lord, right? Paul says, all of you share in God's grace with me. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for you, for all of you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I want you to listen to this next uh, part on this next slide in verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Man, I wish I could pray like Paul. I pray that your love may abound. So much so that it can't be measured anymore. And so much excess. I mean, this is goosebumps type of love that Paul's given here, right? This is so deep. The word he uses here is agape love, which is the love of God. This is for God so loved the world that he gave his, every, gave his one and only son that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's that type of love. I pray that your love may abound more and more. Your godly love would just go everywhere, no matter what others do. You see, we can't, uh, we can't love how God loves until we know him. We can't love how God loves until we spend time with him. We can't love how God loves until you become, you know, on a daily basis more like him. It's so much deeper, so much deeper, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So the first thing is our love is supposed to abound and then go on to knowledge. Knowledge is this experiential knowledge, epigonosco, okay? That's the Greek word here. Not head knowledge, not book knowledge. 
This is gray-haired knowledge. I'm starting to get a couple of gray hairs, so I'm starting to get a little bit of knowledge now. But this is, you've experienced it. This is, I was building out an office at a church one year, and I took a chisel, brand new chisel. I used to do woodworking and stuff, and, and I had to, this, the wall was messed up. We were kind of cutting a hole in the wall and making it into an office. We were doing a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so I was putting in a door where a door didn't belong, and I needed a, a block of wood to fit in this space, and I needed to shave it down with this chisel. Well, I'm young and dumb. I take this stupid piece of wood, and I put it in my hand, and I start working on it. Well, the chisel slips off and goes right down into my thumb. I got a scar here. Go all the way down to the bone. It's bleeding, and I got it covered up with a napkin. I go over to uh, uh, Carolyn, and I go, Carolyn, do you, do you have any stary strips, uh, like butterfly strips? And she's like, why? I go, well, I cut my hand, and she goes, well, let me look at it. I went like this. She's like, ah, freaking out. I'm like, just give me some Band-Aids. I'm good, you know. Put a Band-Aid on it and kept going. But here's the experience. I've never done that again. That's the experiential knowledge that we're talking about, right? You screw up enough that you go, oh, that's what he's talking about here. That God would give us this, this, this chisel knowledge. I hope your knowledge, I hope the things you've experienced just abound. That Jesus makes us wise. I know that, that I mean, some of the, the amazing things that come out of young people's mouths, right? And I'm sitting there going, okay, I know that's not from you. That, that must be from God because you don't have the experience for that. That's why we're trying to teach these young people from an early age. It's amazing what they can do when God is involved in their life from the earliest of ages because a lot of times as we get older, our experience tells us, don't rock the boat. Don't make anybody upset. That works until a certain age, and then you're like, forget that. I'm just going to say whatever I want to say. For some people, not everybody. But, you know, sometimes a young kid will say something, and you're like, oh, ouch. And we're like, well, he said the truth. You know, as you get older, you can get away with that when you go, oops, did I say that out loud? Becoming more like Jesus, epigonosco, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What is depth of insight? It means discernment. Discernment is, is whether you're able to separate reality from unreality, okay? Truth versus untruth. Our world really has a problem with truth right now. They do. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. He says that we should be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Hmm. The word excellent. You know, it's amazing. Godly, pure, blameless. That's how our lives should be. Oftentimes we go, man, that looks fun. And then we have to think, is that pure? Is that blameless? Is that excellent? Is that of God? That is what we're looking for, not whether it's fun or not. Let me end with the 
I got too many notes here, but let me end with the word sincere. It's a Roman word. You split it up in two different words, sin and sere. Sin means without, okay? Sere, or sincere, sere, means wax. So sincere means without wax. Okay, we think, okay, how do we use that word? Well, the Greeks had a lot of marble. In fact, you go over there, the curbs are marble in Athens, okay? That's how much marble they have. Rome comes along and develop a way to put two marble stones together so they start mass-producing things and they take granite dust and they mix it with marble and they mix it with wax to cover pieces that are messed up. You got a cup, but guess what? That cup's got a hole in it. Well, they would take marble dust and wax and mix it all together and you know, put that over it and cover the cracks. Wintertime, you couldn't tell the difference. I can tell you, it gets hot in Greece. I've been there in 113 degrees, and it's like 99% humidity. Not fun. But guess what? That stuff would melt during the summertime. So they had a special stamp, sincere, 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 that they would put on things saying, hey, this, this has been inspected. It's without wax. This is good to buy. Don't buy that shoddy stuff down the street. This has been stamped. It became a big deal. Without wax. We look at Paul and we go, Paul, look at me. I mean, I need some wax. I got some cracks. You don't want to see the other side of me. And God says, no, you need to be sincere. Get past the point of cracks. We need to take another step. Don't look at other people that way. We need, to, to, you know, we need to allow God's grace to fill our cracks, and guess what? God's grace doesn't melt. You see, God makes us sincere. God makes us to the point where somebody messes up, and you say, you know what? I love you anyway. I know you don't deserve it, but I do love you. His mercy comes along, and another verse says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Men, we love this word workmanship, right? We are God's workmanship. We are a work in progress. Paul's telling them there, and he says to them, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says, be sincere, not fake. Jesus wants to melt away all the wax, and when he does... We look in the mirror and we say, but look at my nose, look at this crack, look at this, look at, you know, look at my arm, look, I'm messed up. And he says, it doesn't matter. You are my workmanship and I see you completely different. And people will see you completely different when you are filled with Christ because that wax doesn't melt. You're the one I love. You're the one I'm going to give mercy to. I know you deserve death. I know you deserve that hot place, but I'm not going to give it to you because I paid for you. And on top of that, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to be with you every single day. And you can be a saint here as much as you're a saint when you get to heaven. And that is an awesome thing. And that's how Paul starts out this book. Be pure and blameless to the saints of Philippi, to the saints of Tulare. Why don't we pray as the worship team comes back up and finishes us out with one last song.
Lord, we thank you that we can be called saints. We don't feel like saints. We look in the mirror and we, we can imagine that. But we know, Lord, if we spend time with you each and every day, we take one step forward, we become more like you each day. We thank you for the truckloads of grace that you give us. And we ask for more, Lord. We thank you for the mercy that, uh, that you're giving us in this life. I pray that we can take the goodness, the great things of you, and implement those in our lives that other people start to see us how you see us. And they're attracted to that. And the church is filled, Lord, with people who love you, which means heaven will be filled, Lord. And we ask for that in your loving name, Jesus. Amen.